Hi, this is Rachel in Recovery. We've got a special guest, Pete Singer. He's going to tell us a little bit about himself. He works with Grace. And um, Pete, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, my name is Pete Singer. I'm the executive director over at Grace. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about what Grace is in a little bit, uh, but just a little bit about myself and my background. Uh, I'm a clinical therapist working with uh, kids who've experienced trauma and adult survivors of childhood trauma. Uh, in addition to that, I have worked pretty extensively uh, with a variety of organizations, uh, schools, law firms, mental health clinics, healthcare clinics, uh, victim advocacy groups, and such to uh, better understand what trauma is and better understand trauma-informed practice. Um, and really since probably about 2005 have been uh, working very hard to uh, better equip uh, faith communities with a focus on the uh, with a focus on Christian faith communities, because uh, that's my background, to better recognize, prevent, and respond to uh, abuse. And that might be child abuse, or that might be clergy abuse, or other forms of abuse of uh, power and spiritual abuse and uh, harassment, which may occur uh, within our churches and faith communities. So that's a little bit about me. And before I got into the uh, professional work, had some personal experiences myself uh, growing up in an IFB church, Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church, um, where there was uh, pretty rampant uh, abuse, uh, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, uh, most of the abuse impacted others uh, far more directly than it did me. Um, but just seeing that, and it, it was actually to the point where a couple of people died. Um, and so seeing that play out, I think, it kind of laid the, the seed for recognizing that as a Christian community, we need to do a better job of this. And then when I was in high school, um, going to a school that knowingly had uh, a sex offender, uh, as one of the teachers and, and knew that that was the case, but didn't let anyone know, um, that that was the case. So seeing it, uh, play out within churches and faith communities, uh, as a child, I think really laid the groundwork for me to recognize that this is something that needs to be addressed and addressed well, um, because those, those things that I just described, that church where people died, uh, the church that let a known sex offender, uh, teach in their Christian school. These things do not reflect the heart of God. And then a little bit about... I'm sorry, go ahead. That is... I was going to just say, like, that is so true, and that is... That, like, really is so detrimental to, I think, how we, as the church, represent Christ to the world at this moment in time. Absolutely. Drastically, absolutely, and and it gets to how how people see the church, how people see Christians, and then building on that, it gets to how people see God, because we really do represent Christ. We represent God, and how people see us is how people see God, um, and I don't think this is how God wants to be represented. No, He does not. Um. 
I guess let's get into, uh, tell us a little bit about Grace. Sure. Well, Grace started back in 2004, uh, a guy by the name of Boz Chavidjan, who was a child abuse prosecutor, uh, noticed that when he would prosecute a case of child abuse that intersected with a church or Christian faith community, oftentimes there would be a large number of people from that church or ministry or faith community that showed up at the trial, but almost invariably they would be showing up for the perpetrator. They would be character witnesses. They would be people talking about how, oh, he couldn't have done that because he's such a nice person. Um, and, and hardly ever were they there for the victim, for the survivor. And Boz recognized that this just simply did not reflect the heart of God. And so um, he started GRACE, uh, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, back in 2004. Uh, he pulled together uh, a team of just some incredible, incredible experts in the field, both of uh, uh, the fields of child abuse. Child abuse was the initial focus. Um, and then... Uh, in theology and in really the intersection of faith and abuse and, and what happens when those two things collide. Uh, Boz himself um, brought in a fair amount of uh, capital, uh, just reputational capital, because he is Billy Graham's grandson. And so he, he gathered these people around him, and they began the work of Grace. Oh, wow. and, and Grace started back in 2004, like I said, really focused on child abuse and focused on prevention, focused on equipping churches by training leaders, by training whole congregations, by uh, helping them have effective policies and procedures. But over time, the work of Grace has expanded. It's expanded now so that while we still deal probably most extensively with child abuse, we also look at other forms of abuse. We look at clergy abuse. We look at sexual harassment. We look at spiritual abuse uh, and other forms of misconduct that might occur uh, within a church setting. And we still have that very strong focus on prevention, on on stopping the abuse from happening to the extent possible in the first place by adequately training leaders, by training entire congregations so that the whole community can work to create a safe environment, a safe place to worship by looking at policies and procedures, making sure that they don't just address one hour on Sunday or two hours on Sunday, but that they're more comprehensive and really lead the church to recognize that this isn't a box that we check off. This is related to our identity in Christ. This is something that reflects the heart of God and that we are called to do, and as such can't just be something that we check a box and feel we're done with, but it has to be something that we're actively engaged in, that has to be tied to our culture, our identity, um, and our entire view of God and the gospel. And so working uh, with, with churches preventatively to have these things in place, to grow a culture that recognizes this. 
And then now we also do work real time so that when churches first get an allegation, when they first discover that there's a known offender teaching Sunday school or just attending, when they first find out that there's been a minor on minor situation, what do they do? Well, they can call Grace and we can help walk them through that situation and determine things like uh, how do we respond to all the parties that are involved? How do we talk about it to our broader congregation? Do we speak about it at all outside of our congregation to the broader community? Um, how do we make sure that people are treated well and people are cared for who have been hurt? How do we make sure that our response reflects the heart of God and cares for the survivor rather than doing whatever we can to protect our reputation? Um, so just working through those questions with them real time. And then after the fact, and we work with, um, at this point, probably 15 to 20 uh, churches and, and ministries a year to do investigations or assessments. In an investigation, we typically have a known perpetrator who did a specific act to some specific people. And then we investigate. Um, do these allegations appear credible? Are there other people who might be victims? Um, did anyone at the church know about it? And if they did, when did they know about it? And if they knew about it, how did they respond? And were there policies and procedures and preventative measures in place when this happened? And if they weren't there when it happened, are they in place now? And so um, we look at that during an investigation, and we look at very similar things during an assessment. And what sets a, an assessment apart from an investigation is that with an investigation, we have that designated perpetrator and some specific things that we believe happened. And with an assessment, we're more looking at the overall culture of the church or ministry. There may not be a specific perpetrator, and it may not be a specific act so much as just the whole way that this church uses power, the whole way that this church views a particular group, whether it's how they view kids, how they view women, or how they view some other group, but just how is that affecting the overall culture of the organization, and that how does that culture uh, increase or decrease vulnerabilities and, and risk to abuse? No, I mean, that's a huge issue in the church. Um... What are ways churches can hold abusers accountable? I think there are a lot of key things that churches can do to hold abusers accountable. I think heading into it, just realizing even the word that you use there, accountability. Accountability is actually a good thing. Accountability isn't a punishment. Accountability is something that's put in place to help a person grow in their walk. So even just choosing that term accountability and making sure that we see this as it may be uncomfortable, but this is actually caring for a perpetrator if we hold them accountable. That if we hold that perpetrator accountable, we can help them hurt fewer people. If we hold them accountable, there may be some level of growth that can occur. And so even just the idea of the word accountable 
helps us to understand the perspective that we should have of, yes, we are protecting vulnerable people, but it's not just a punishment on a perpetrator. It may be um, something that the perpetrator truly, truly needs in their own journey as well. But things that we can do, I'm going to go back to uh, to what I was talking about before with the three areas that, that Grace focuses on, prevention, real time, and then after the fact. Things that we can do to hold a perpetrator accountable pre preventatively. Train leaders. Train the entire community to recognize and respond to abuse. A leader is not going to be able to hold a perpetrator accountable if the leader has no clue what they're dealing with. So leaders have to recognize abuse dynamics. Leaders have to recognize and understand the concept of grooming and that a perpetrator isn't just grooming their intended victim, but that perpetrator is grooming the entire community. That perpetrator is grooming them. That the leader is the subject of grooming from the perpetrator. And yes. so we have to train leaders to recognize this. Ideally, that training would be something that everybody going through a seminary or a ministry program gets. Right now, you'll be lucky to find 5 or 10% of programs having anything close to that. And so we need to expand that at the college, university, seminary level. But absent that, in our own individual churches and in our denominations and associations and movements, we need to make sure that leadership, whether that leader is called a pastor, that leader is called an elder, a deacon, a teacher, whatever they may be called, that leaders have this basic understanding of what is abuse, what are the dynamics around it? What is grooming? How does this relate to who we are in Christ? Because if it slips back to being a checkbox, we're not going to do well. We're going to fail. But if we keep it part of our identity in Christ, yes, then it becomes a heart issue, not a checkmark issue. And we need to make sure that our communities as a whole are trained on this so that everybody plays a part in creating a safe community and and not just that but that people play a part in holding leadership accountable the church that i'm going to right now uh, we started going to in the middle of the pandemic we we ended up having to uh, choosing to switch churches during the pandemic and we were listening to services online and so we get to this church and we listen to their service online, and the pastor is preaching about humility. And he's not preaching about humility, telling the church that they need to be humble. He's preaching about humility, saying the leaders of this church need to be humble. And this is what you should expect from us when it comes to humility. And if you see us not being humble, you have every right to call us on it. And if we're not responding to you calling us on not being humble, making sure rest of the, the rest of the leadership at the church knows about the concern, because you deserve to have leaders who are humble and recognize that they're not the source of power God is. They're not the authority. 
God is. We go to that church. So leaders that understand that, helping churches, the broad church community understand that so that they can hold their leaders accountable and so that they can also help watch for kids and the vulnerable because the leaders can't be everywhere all at once. So that training for leaders and the community as a whole clear policies and procedures that don't just say don't abuse a child. If your policy is don't abuse a child, your policy has failed. But a policy that sets clear boundaries well ahead of time that aren't just going to make it harder to abuse, but are going to make it harder to groom. That give quite a bit of a buffer so that when you see something that makes you think, hey, that violates the policy, you're not noticing that only after abuse has already occurred. But hopefully noticing that allows you to prevent the abuse from occurring in the first place. And that policy should have really clear boundaries, really clear ways to respond to policy violations. It needs to not just cover behavior at church not just cover behavior in the building because most abuse occurs outside of the church building and so the policy needs to go beyond the church building and people in the church need to know the policy because how are they going to help uphold the policy and recognize the culture that the policy is supposed to represent if they don't know about the policy so we have to have education we have to have clear policies. We have to yes. not wait until it's an issue. We have to preach about it. When we preach about it, we're helping to hold a perpetrator accountable. When we preach about it, we are making it harder for the perpetrator to then twist scripture and abuse people with that scripture. So we preach about things like David and Bathsheba. And we don't call it the affair that David and Bathsheba had. We call it David's rape of Bathsheba. We look at these things within Scripture. We tease them apart. We pull out the theology yeah. behind it and how this helps us understand abuse dynamics. We talk about and preach about sheeps and wolves clothing and so we establish through what we preach that this is a safe place we establish through what we preach that if you have been hurt you have a safe haven here and we establish through what we preach that if you attend to abuse people here you best move on because this church values safety not just as something that's there but as a God-given responsibility. And because of that, we're going to hold you accountable. And we, as a church body and as leadership, will do what we need to to do that. We need to look at our theology. Because our theology, if we view it appropriately, in my mind, our theology compels us to hold the perpetrator accountable. It doesn't just make it a good thing to hold them accountable. It compels us to hold them accountable. And we have to recognize that we are going to hit on things that we have no clue what to deal with. 
And that means we need to be open to consulting with outside subject matter experts who get this, who will be able to help you understand how best to hold a perpetrator accountable. Now that's the prevention side. But real time, when you first find out that person A may have abused person B, I can't emphasize enough the importance of getting outside counsel. In order to effectively hold that abuser accountable, you need some distance. Because like we were talking about before, the perpetrator has probably been grooming you. And if you've been the subject of that grooming, you might have a hard time holding the person accountable because you may not believe that they actually did it. Yep. Because you may think it was just a slip up. Or if your doctrine is off, you may consider it an affair rather than abuse. And holding a person accountable to not have an affair is very different than holding in a person accountable to not abuse. And so we have to recognize abuse for abuse and not pass it off as an affair. We have to manage the conversation in, in these situations. I've had several churches describe to me that once an accusation was made, the abuser, the perpetrator, went on a public relations campaign. That's not allowed. And the church can help manage the conversation, not in the way that has been done at times by, don't gossip here, but as a way that limits the alleged perpetrator's ability to raise up an army of supporters against the victim and that limits that person's ability to continue grooming even in the midst of the allegations. So we manage the conversation. We have to talk to the whole congregation about it. There are a lot of factors that are going to impact how we talk to the congregation about it, but it has to be something that's done directly. It has to not be sugar-coated because the congregation needs to know what's going on. And then uh, we need to make sure that we've contacted law enforcement and child protection if that's called for. And even if we're not positive that it's called for, we're going to err on the safe side. And contacting law enforcement and child protection helps us hold that person accountable. And then finally, we're going to limit access. This is easiest to do if we have a good policy in place that says when an allegation is made, this is how we're going to respond. And then when you respond that way, it's clear that you are just following the policy. A lot of times churches are afraid that if they limit the person's access, it'll seem like we're saying uh, we believe they did it before we've had any chance to look at it. Well, then put a policy in place that says you're going to limit access. And then when you do limit access, you just say, we're following the policy. We haven't had a chance to look into it. So we know statistically the vast majority of reports are accurate, but we can't say for sure on this specific one yet, maybe. We are looking into it, and until we've had a chance to look into it, our policy says they won't be on property or whatever you choose for that policy to, to be. And so limiting access. And then after the fact, when you find out that a person in the past may have offended or may have allegations against them. Corey Jewell Jensen has written uh, an incredible article, and you can uh, find it uh, online, open access, on 
how churches can minister to offenders. And part of that is she talks at length about limited access agreements. Limited access agreements limit how much, if at all, a known perpetrator can be on site and under what conditions. Um, the direct monitoring, not by a person that they're close to, but by somebody who can be objective and somebody who's trained in abuse dynamics to recognize different things. That, that limited access agreement doesn't just cover what happens at church, but it also covers what happens outside of church. And if you violate our limited access agreement outside of church, then you need to find a different place to attend. That we hold that person accountable when it comes to repentance and forgiveness. So often, we have this desperate desire to extend repentance and forgiveness. Even, or to extend forgiveness, even when there isn't repentance. Um, Anna Salter, uh, whom uh, you've interviewed on this program before, yes. talks about that and talks about the offenders with whom she has spoken that identify church as an easy target because they want to believe the best. They want to forgive you. You can cry a few tears and everything will be fine. That's not holding the offender accountable. And so understanding what repentance and forgiveness are, again, consult. Don't just rely on yourself. Seek an outside professional who no, understands this. And then for some, uh, for some churches especially, it'll be very, very important to understand how does the confessional role of clergy relate to this. Some people hold a belief that if I gained this information that the person is an abuser during a confessional process, I can't let anyone else know. And I can't really hold them accountable if they say they don't want to talk about it outside of the confessional. And if we understand that that actually is not the intent of the confessional, and if we understand that even if the law might give an out for confessional privilege, that doesn't mean that necessarily morally and ethically there's an out for confessional privilege. Victor V from the Zero Abuse Project has written uh, a very powerful um, article looking at confessional privilege within the Lutheran Church um, and how that relates to reporting abuse. Uh, and argues very well, uh, I think, that confessional privilege does not remove a moral and ethical mandate to still report abuse that you might hear of. And that's part of holding the perpetrator accountable. All right, we'll wrap it up for this week. Um, Pete will be back next week and tell us the rest of it. Rest on Grace and his experience with spiritual abuse. Um, Pete, thanks for being here. Um, Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Well, um, Eve has a lot of good resources for those that are struggling right now and that are in different stages through their recovery, whether it's the spiritual sexual abuse combination or just spiritual abuse in itself um, and or just abuse in general. Um, and then... Uh, 
All right, guys, this is uh, wrapping up. Um, follow us on our social media and find us on your favorite social media platform. And as always, if you need to reach out to Rachel and Recovery, go to rachelandrecovery.com. Thanks for listening.